Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this Behind the Curtain conversation, musicologist Dr. Christy Brown Montesano and Dr. Ariane Hallou, a dramaturg and French studies scholar, discuss Oedipus Rex, composed by Igor Stravinsky to a libretto by Jean Cocteau based on the ancient Greek tragedy of the same name by Sophocles. The 1927 opera is a highly stylized, ritualistic work set in the time of plague. On Sunday, June 6th, LA Opera is thrilled to present Oedipus Rex at our home in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. With a limited audience and safety protocols observed, it will be our first public indoor performance since March of 2020. Music director James Conlon conducts a stellar cast led by tenor Russell Thomas, LA Opera's artist-in-residence as Oedipus, the doomed king. Mezzo-soprano Janae Bridges returns as Jocasta, his queen and mother. Legendary actor Stephen Fry will make his LA Opera debut via audio recording as the narrator in this equally legendary tale. But don't worry if you can't be with us on June 6th. We will release a special online version of Oedipus Rex on June 17th for home viewing. Please check out our website at www.leopera.org for more information. This is a story about plague. And a story about trying to reckon with misdeeds of the past. When Oedipus blinds himself at the end, the truth is he has been psychologically blind through the entire drama. Hi, I'm Christy Brown Montesano. I am the chair of music history at the Colburn School, working more in the conservatory of music with our undergraduate and master's students, where I teach quite a bit of stuff, including a course on the interwar period. Hi, my name is Ariane Hallou. I'm a scholar of theater and performance studies and literature. And I also work professionally as a dramaturg, which means that I get to look into the histories of um, different performance pieces and how to and help with the research that brings them to life on stage. And I'm very excited to be here today to talk with you, Christy, about Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex. Yes, not one of the usual. I have to say, uh, I was delighted when I opened up the Los Angeles Times and saw that LA Opera was returning to the stage for a live offering, but completely blown away that the, the work that was going to be featured was Oedipus Rex, because it's not put on very often. And uh, I was just so delighted. Really, I fell in love with this piece uh, with the 1992 film version with Julie Taymor's staging. And it caught my imagination then. And I would like to hear, uh, especially with your experience as a dramaturg and your experience with French culture and French literature and, and this neoclassic time with French art. I have so many thoughts about this piece. For me, it, it's sort of a wonderful new discovery because I knew I knew of it and I had probably heard snippets of the music at some point, but I'd never listened to the whole thing all the way through. So actually to prepare for our conversation today, I did watch that same um, Julie Taymor production, which just blew me away. I thought it was incredible. Um, I mean, of course, anyone who's familiar with Julie Taymor's work for the stage knows that she, she does a lot with these, you know, larger than life-size puppets, which are really incredible. Um, 
but the music was extraordinary. And um, I, you know, part of my interest in this piece is not just on the French culture of that time period, uh, but also on on neoclassicism in two senses, right? So, so Stravinsky's kind of neoclassical moment in that period was partly about a return to when we say classical music, what we mean is the sort of Western art music of the 18th century as a kind of reaction against the sentimental excesses of romanticism in the 19th century and against the sort of, you know, move toward atonality at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. Um, so part of it is a musical classicism. But also, of course, Oedipus is based on the tragedy by Sophocles written in Athens about 2,500 years ago. And so there is also that return to classicism in the sense of a return to antiquity or an idea of antiquity. And that's something that my academic research has been really invested in. So um, I've done a fair amount of research on these sort of neoclassical sort of experiments with reviving ancient drama with music. Uh, in sort of the 16th and 17th centuries. Seeing this 20th century example um, was really fascinating to me as a sort of, you know, an, a similar approach in a very, very different historical moment and a different cultural context. So that's something I'm excited to talk about as well. One of the things that, you know, when we talk about neoclassicism, Stravinsky is the name in music that most people reference. But of course, France was in a, in a larger sense drawn to a kind of classicism earlier on um, so that you have the uh, Société Nationale de Musique, this idea of uh, people like Saint-Saëns and Forêt say we need to stick up for French music and, and develop our own school because of the strong influence, we might even say the hegemony at that time of kind of German way of thinking of music and, and everything, you know, there was Wagner and everybody had to weigh in on that. And so you get that build of a kind of, you know, we're going to be the opposite of the Wagnerian ideal. So much more classicized, looking back to their own piece. And even during the war, First World War, one of the pieces that I often show students and audiences is the um, Tombeau du Couperin of Ravel. So he's actually creating an homage to Francois Couperin, so that 18th century early on, with the tombeau, which goes back to even middle, middle ages, where you, one composer will honor a former composer and uh, these suites of dances. So this is, he's writing this during the World War, even as he's dedicating these individual movements to people that he's lost, that people during the war have been killed. So I always find it interesting that the classicism is also a reaction in a way to the, not just an anti-German and, and very much, as you say, this anti-romantic, this push against romanticism, but almost an understanding that the, the very place that gave us this amazing 19th century romanticism that we think is exactly where there's the cataclysm of World War I. So culture did not, you know, this transcendent art of emotion did not save Europe from turning in on itself, right? And uh, arguably, France and Germany at the ground zero of that. You have somebody like Stravinsky come along 
now an expatriate in France, centered in Paris, very much aware of what's going on, but also kind of a cultural other as this Russian emigre and recognizing he may not be able to go back home with the revolution since he is seen as a modernist back home. So all of that coming together where the way Stravinsky sticks with neoclassicism, not just for a short time, but pretty much from 1919. So after post-World War I, all the way through World War II until Schoenberg dies. So the man associated with those atonal uh, experimentations and then the 12-tone technique, then he moves into, you know, kind of a high modernist mode. But that's, that's a long time being attracted to a neoclassic impulse. So it's usually where we instantly go. And then Oedipus Rex, as you say, brings up the second idea, not just the forms and more semi-diatonic or neotonality language, but also a real turn to classic Greek and classic subjects. You know, he's now going to pair with somebody who was equally interested, Jean Cocteau, right? So he has both of them turning back to antiquity. And so as a dramaturg, I'm sure you've worked with those original plays, but now they're being reinterpreted. And, and you talked about that a little bit. How, so how does that stimulate the imagination, this kind of classicism through the filter of a classicism that's now for us 100 years old? Right. It's so interesting because the the Greek plays um, often serve this kind of this kind of double function when people choose to stage them. Uh, in some ways, it's because, you know, they're accessible. They're all in the public domain. You don't have to pay royalties on them or anything like that. There's something that is seen to be accessible about them, particularly when we're talking about the early 20th century, when the, you know, a lot of the audiences at this at this production would have been, would have received a classical education. Um, anyone who went through the French school system in the first half of the 20th century or earlier would certainly have read Sophocles in school and would have known the text very well, probably before getting to, to see the play. And indeed, the way that the libretto is structured, it assumes that the audience already knows the story. And even today, it's still a text that is frequently taught, even at the high school level. I think I had to read it in ninth grade for the first time. It was assigned reading. I've taught it when I've taught undergraduate literature and theater courses. So it's still it's still very much part of the canon. And even if you've never read the play, you know, well, Oedipus accidentally killed his father and married his mother, not knowing who they were, right? But what's interesting is that Cocteau wrote this libretto in French, but the piece, as it's performed, is actually not performed in French. He then had the libretto translated into Latin. So to provide this kind of additional distance uh, between the listener and the performance, because even if you had received a classical education, you may not necessarily have been able to, to follow the Latin that you were hearing sung. And it's, just, it's, just, it's sort of an odd idea, right? We tend to collapse all of antiquity, all of all of the various ancient cultures and languages into one sort of classical monolith. But that's not at all the case, right? Greek culture, and what we really mean when we say Greek, in this case, we're talking about Sophocles, where it's really Athenian culture, um, was very different from Roman cultures, right? Um, over a span of centuries and a vast empire that contained multiple geographies and cultures and languages within it. 
So Jean Cocteau wrote the libretto in French and then had it translated into Latin by Abbé Jean Danielou, who was at the time uh, a young scholar uh, in his early 20s uh, and a student at the Sorbonne. And he was studying, uh, he was a scholar of Latin, but he was studying theology. So his Latin, something that's interesting about the style of the Latin is that it has this very kind of medieval flavor to it. One of the other things that's really um, striking about how, how he composed it, which, I, which um, you'll probably have more to say about, is that he's, he doesn't seem very interested in the sense of the text as he's composing. Um, he does some really interesting things with like, you know, words repeated over and over, and he varies the rhythm. Uh, and what happens is that it changes the pronunciation of the word, right? Like where the natural stress would fall as you speak it does not always map onto the way he composes it. The words that are repeated tend to be the important ones like oracula, which means oracle. Or which means the crossroads, which is the place where Laius, the old king, was murdered. So they have some sense, but there isn't, he doesn't go in for like word painting, which would have been a very classical or neoclassical move, but that's where he seems to sort of separate himself as a modernist. Yes, he was very interested in Latin specifically for that distancing. And it's funny because it makes me think of like a, the kind of like Brechtian alienation, right? That there's mm -hmm. the idea is you're taking it in, but you're not getting too emotionally involved. It's, there's a kind of judgment. What, and he said specifically, because while the narrator, and I know you'll talk about Cocteau and his narrators, but while the narrator is talking to the people in a kind of short form of the, of the story in whatever language, the performance takes place. Stravinsky's interest in Latin is very much for its attachment to church as well, which is, I think, why he might have been comfortable also with Danielou, because he himself, I think Cocteau around the same period, just before, begins to look at rejoining a kind of reconfirmation of some religious practice or spiritual life. For him, it would have meant Old Slavonic. He does return to the Orthodox. Stravinsky returns to the Orthodox Cocteau to Catholic, a new kind of brand of Catholicism. But he wanted something, he said, that felt a little like a sacred language. And he'll bring that back for the later piece, Symphony of Psalms, which sounds quite similar to the choral writing of Oedipus and it's written three years later. He wanted, he said, something to be so monumental, including the language, that it could not undergo vulgarization. So it had to be beyond the conversational, that it couldn't become the language of the street, right? That was a big thing for Stravinsky. I want it to sound like a statue. Like I want it to be immovable, formal, a little cold, a little distant. So even though you have this language of the street with your narrator, you are absolutely taken to something quite foreign. And I thought it was interesting. He doesn't want it to be, he knows he's in a primarily Catholic country. He makes it the Catholic sacred language as opposed to his own old Slavonic sacred language. Uh, so reaching that sense, but he did that again a few years later. So Latin was, it meant something very particular, I think, to Stravinsky that even was different 
than it would have been to Cocteau or audiences at that time. Right. And for the French audience, it would have carried uh, this double sense of both the classical and the religious. And France, um, you know, has a, a sort of um, complex history with regard to religion and the, the relationship between religion and society, religion and the state. So it was, you know, it was something that had been part of the cultural discourse going back to the revolution of 1789. And there sort of, you know, the state had become progressively more secular, but it was really under the Third Republic, which started in the late 19th century, where that was finally codified into law. The first generation that had that had started to explore this culture of secularity, uh, the word in French is laïcité, of a lay society rather than a clerical uh, or a religious society. And so this is kind of the second generation after that, Danielou's generation, where maybe there's a there's a sort of like return to to seeking some sacredness for those who who still want that to be part of their culture. But at the same time, because of the classical education, that was also the other pillar of the French Republic at that time, because the other the other sort of major innovation was for um, for them was to institute free public education. And it was mandated that public education should be secular education. So the classics became even more prominent as the kind of the sacred text of a secular education, you know, sort of Homer and Virgil and Sophocles and Horace and all of the others kind of taking the place of scripture in the classroom. And that had been the case for, you know, since since the Middle Ages, since the Renaissance, the classical texts had been part of the foundation of that classical education, separating them from the religious context and making them sort of the only the only context in which you got your Greek and Latin, right, as preparation to read the classics on their own terms, as opposed to reading the classics to learn the grammar to be able to read scripture was a sort of still a fairly newish context in the late 19th century. So that's the sort of the climate in which Cocteau and his contemporaries and their audiences would have probably encountered these texts. It's really fascinating. We we forget, and, and I've talked about this often to audiences and students about the, the importance of, of opera or oratorio. You have to start with language, first of all. Opera was a theater that very early became attached to nationalism in the 19th century. With it. And, but even, even its earliest uh, forms, it was attached to classics. The earliest operas were, of course, on the Orpheus myth. Uh, Cocteau will do Orphée right before this, right? So this idea of this guy who can sing and play better than anyone else and move the gods and change fates. The poster guy for music among these deities and semi-deities. And, um, but also as countries began to um, establish their national genre, whether it was the French saying, no, we still want five acts. We want classic Racine kind of like, we want it to keep it very classic. Each one of the countries, and then as you begin to get other countries that had been considered satellites, uh, the, the Bohemian countries and Czech language and all, that this idea of language for opera was very important. And it played on the knowledge of the audiences. What would they know? What stories would they know? How, what would these stories mean in terms of their education, their history, their culture? And so in some ways, it strikes me that this, you know, it's one thing to do Orphée, very typical in, in opera, but it really struck me that 
Oedipus is rather a strange story for this, right? Um, so many, I've had a couple people when I've taught this, this piece, they're like, oh, Oedipal complex. I get it because people <laughs> they do not necessarily know that Oedipus is a myth. They literally think it's just a psychological word for boys wanting to kill their, psychologically wanting to kill the father and, and marry their mothers. So they're not even aware of this myth. And it was, I was trying to think about this story why would this have attracted Stravinsky? And uh, what would it have meant to audiences at this time? And I wondered if you, I mean, I have some thoughts, but I, I wondered, what do you think then? They've, they've got the classical education. These, this audience has a classical education. It has this double-sided relationship to Latin, right? They know about Cocteau and his other, this neoclassic impulse where they're, you know, Antigone, and he's doing these, he retranslated that, and now he's written Orphée, and these, so that's all there. What do you think for audiences then, Oedipus, or, or what do you get from the work? What was trying to be communicated? That's a great question. I think there are, I think there are a few possibilities. Um, so I have, I have a few different ideas. I mean, there is this sort of literary value, which is one of the reasons that Oedipus has become so famous as a literary text. And one of the reasons why it is taught so frequently is that this is the tragedy that when Aristotle wrote the Poetics, which was his sort of treatise about how tragedy works, he pointed to Sophocles' Oedipus as the, the tragedy that is a sort of most perfect example of the form right? The structure is really tight. It has all of the plot twists and turns. It has the hero who is the kind of prototype of a tragic hero in that he is trying to do the right thing, but keeps missing the mark and is sort of not behaving appropriately with, with regard to what the gods and fate have imposed upon him. Um, and the poetry is, um, is really beautiful, really, really gorgeously constructed. Uh, so, so that's sort of the beginning of, that's the kind of the entrance of Sophocles' Oedipus into the canon. And it's one of the most frequently translated of the Greek tragedies, but uh, not one of the most frequently performed because it's, it's very difficult in some ways. Um, and also we all know the story. Obviously Sophocles' audience knew the story already, right? It was a well-established myth and he was neither the first nor the last um, Greek playwright or Athenian playwright to dramatize that story. So there's something about the kind of literary weight that it carries. I love that you mentioned the earliest operas um, a few minutes ago, the, the Orpheus operas from the turn of the 17th century in, uh, in Northern Italy, because uh, shortly before that, um, in 1585, was the first production of Oedipus that included music that we know of. Oh, this was prime neoclassicism. It was a translation of the play into Tuscan Italian. So the sort of literary was done by um, Orsato Giustiniani, who was a, a Florentine poet. Um, and it was staged at the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza, which was this beautiful neoclassical theater um, designed by Andrea Palladio, who was the great neoclassical architect um, of the period. And it was, you know, it was a great spectacle and it was meant to sort of like show, you know, show the grandeur of, of what we can accomplish in the Renaissance now that we've learned all these things about the ancient world. 
And the music was by Andrea Gabrielli, who was a, a prominent composer um, in Venice at the time. And uh, he set the choruses to music. So it wasn't like an opera. The dialogue was recited by the actors, but the chorus, the choruses were sung. It was a sort of attempt to like recreate what they understood of ancient music. It was rhythmic, but it was homophonic rather than polyphonic. So if you think about that period, like madrigals are very in vogue. There are, you know, lots of compositions with multiple voices, competing rhythms, right? Everything intertwined together. The idea with, with the way that Gabrielli wrote the music for the 1585 Oedipus was so that you could hear every word, right? The rhythms were all aligned. So you could hear the text very clearly. And because that was what they understood had been the case with with ancient Greek music. So I think part of it is that if you're going to embrace neoclassicism and be as classical as you can be, Oedipus is kind of like the or text, right? It's the, it's the prototype. And then I think the final thing is that, you know, as, as we were saying, the piece premiered in 1927 and it took a, a few years to write. So when Stravinsky and Cocteau started their collaboration, it was pretty shortly after the end of the First World War and after uh, the end of the flu pandemic of 1918. This is a story about plague and a story about trying to reckon with misdeeds of the past. So there's something... There's something interesting about that as well, that the play opens with Thebes in crisis. And it's a crisis that seems to have come on suddenly after a period of relative stability while Oedipus has been king. Mm -hmm. Oedipus became king because he solved the riddle of the Sphinx. The Sphinx was attacking the city. And so he was able to, to save the city from the Sphinx by solving her riddle, getting her to, to fly away and leave Thebes alone. But that was a period of turmoil as well. And so there's this sort of, you know, this constant instability and this need to like get at the root of what is what has caused the plague, what is causing the turmoil. And so I think there's, you know, there's something very alluring about that too. And it's so mm. interesting to think of in our current moment, it seems incredible. I don't know if this was, you know, a deliberate choice, but it seems incredibly apt to have an opera about the end of a plague be the first live performance coming out of the pandemic. You know, I was thinking of Stravinsky's own particular situation as I think he felt like he was like the a plaything of the gods in one way, like everything had changed on him and but and they were coming out of this. But this this idea of war, so two periods of instability, right? Or threat. So the period of the Sphinx, which is killing young men, that would have been something, certainly there were civilian casualties, but the truth of World War I was a generation of men. Basically, you're losing huge numbers. So the killing of young men followed or intersecting with a period of plague. So that is the, the two together, it does make a very powerful that just because you're saved from the first this next wave of tragedy comes of threat and i had not realized that oedipus at least as a, a dramatic this or text ideal it that this is the perfect tragedy and it's it's true it's pacing and the reveals that happen actually make it very similar to what we think of as in the best kind of tragedies or dramas that we watch, right? Something that we don't see and the story's playing and then the card turns and suddenly you recognize what you've been seeing or everything has to be reread from that moment. 
for Stravinsky, who was, I mean, it's funny that he did not want to have, I think, a huge emotional thing about liking any one character. They're fairly static characters. I mean, they're very, it's very stylized presentation of the characters. Pretty much, I, I mean, Oedipus is the only one who really gets to sing more than one thing for the most part. They, they present themselves in these static ways. So when Oedipus blinds himself at the end, the truth is he has been psychologically blind through the entire drama. And this is just making physical what has kind of already been there. The work had a very mixed reception, I will say. Mm -hmm. um, maybe for some people, it still felt too soon to, to have these kinds of thoughts. Uh, for others, they wanted kind of real catharsis and he keeps it much too buttoned up and in some ways cerebral, at least musically, for us not to have that. As you say, very little emotive writing, word painting that is bringing out the sensation or the what we think of as the emotional sensation of a particular text not really happening. This was a piece as I was reading about the reception and Stravinsky was a megalomaniac, let's just be honest. I mean, he was a, he wanted to control everything. So his collaborations were always a, a bit fraught, mm -hmm. but like many composers, he just believed he was the best person to conduct his works. And uh, we know today that that's not always the best idea. Uh, the truth is composers may not be the best person because that doesn't mean they're automatically good conductors. So there were problems with that. So I think in some ways the performances were maybe not as effective, polished as they could have been. But I also think that people were, were listening to this music and they were trying to figure out where is the tragedy? Like, how are we supposed to relate to this? And it was a tall order, right? For, right. for take that. This is the great tragedy, mm -hmm. but you're actually being asked to look at it from a kind of distanced, cerebral, formalist place. Right. Because catharsis is the thing that is supposed to happen when a tragedy succeeds. And so a successful production of Oedipus, which clearly Aristotle felt <laughs> that he, he must have seen a, a successful production of it um, and felt that it achieved that, that being that kind of, you know, emotion, that the big emotional welling up that then allows you to kind of like release that emotion, right? So it's a sort of a sort of cleansing act for the audience and an emotional relief. And it's also supposed to to elicit very specific emotions of um, of pity or compassion for what the characters are going through, and also of fear that you could maybe experience this yourself one day. Right. And and the way that the way that Stravinsky and Cocteau have constructed the the libretto, so musically, as you said, there is there are these distancing effects, but it's in the text as well, right? Because the audience isn't hearing the drama in their own language. There are also you know, the, the way that they, that they wanted it to be staged was to have as little sort of staging as possible. Um, it's, you know, strictly speaking, it's called an opera oratorio. So right. it's not even as fully dramatized <laughs> as an opera. Um, and then the narrator is this additional distancing effect, because on, on the one hand, the narrator kind of, um, you know, we think of the narrator as being, as you said, sort of a tour guide for the audience. But 
also standing between the audience and the story. You can never get fully absorbed into mm -hmm. it when someone is popping in to say, oh, by the way, here's what happens next, right? And also the the distraction of having two languages going on at once. So the, the, the sung portion of the libretto is in Latin, and the narration is in, as you said, the, the language of the audience. So, um, so when LA Opera does it, the narration will be in English. When it premiered in Paris, the narration was in French. Um, when that wonderful um, Julie Timor production was staged in Japan, mm -hmm. so the narration is in Japanese, you always have to be kind of thinking into languages, or maybe not thinking into languages, but your ears are taking in multiple languages, whether you, you know, regardless of what proficiency you have in either of them, you're still hearing these different sounds and, and have to make something of them, um, which is an additional distancing effect. And, you know, I was thinking of, uh, I want to talk about the the objectivity idea here, but the, I was thinking of the, the Tamor film version with Seiji Ozawa conducting she did something interesting because having the woman narrator speak Japanese, she's also doing a kind of classicized, almost no theater type of idea. It's a very big voice um, that's very dramatic and, but formal, super, super stylized and formal. But one of the things in the, according to the stage directions was it should sound detached like a lecturer. So almost like you're saying, and then, you know, Oedipus, went to Thebes and, you know, it's like this, and we find in blah, 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 you know, this very detached way. I think most people don't quite do it that way because I, I, I think maybe uh, Stravinsky put that. Sometimes you can say to the composer, I don't know that you're right. Like we're going to still stage it this way. And I thought it was a great, it was a great choice to add something. And I think that's why when we produce these works, we always have to think, okay, but how will this get this effect today? You know, one of the problems with Stravinsky is that he will push something to a far edge of something. Like he'll overstate his case often. So his neoclassic journey, which began a little with Pulcinella, but it, it let's take the octet. There were four pieces he wrote before Oedipus that were strongly neoclassic. And one of them is this octet. He gets rid of strings. And he said, I purposely don't want strings because they're too romantic. So I'm going to focus on woodwinds. And he's, he wrote an essay, very, very much these typical kind of uh, French manifesto ideas, right? I'm throwing down and he says, my octet is a musical object. And I don't need you to interpret it. I don't need you to feel anything. I need you to execute it as I have indicated in the score. So it's a very text bound. Um, I mean, it's an impossible thing to ask a performer, don't interpret this. I mean, even the idea of an indication that says, you know, piano, well, how, which is soft, well, how soft and how loud will your forte be? Like what? So he said, I got rid of nuance. So it was very harsh, austere, frankly, um, reactionary position. You know, I don't want any interpretation. But now this is a drama. So he he comes to this. And, and the reason I bring this up is the idea of the oratorio and non-staging is interesting because part of this had nothing to do with the original concept. I mean, it was literally a logistical problem. As often happens with staged 
produced art forms, there is the matter of money. So he, in 1926, so, so Oedipus will come to stage in 1927, all the way through 1926, he keeps starting it and then flying somewhere to conduct a work or get, because he needs money. So he continues to interrupt. Moreover, he, he keeps acting Cocteau, he asks Cocteau for new versions, like, oh, I don't like that, right? So right. there's constant pushing back of not getting to business on this. Uh, so when they arrived and they wanted it staged, now he still had ideas about the staging, but he did want it staged. Uh, they didn't, they couldn't come up with the funds fast enough to pay for it and rehearse it as a stage. Cause then you have to have a director and you have to have, so in the end they ran out of time and the best way then was to, and this is so typical in a way of Stravinsky to say, oh, I meant to do that the whole time. Right. So I never intended it. This is always if, if there's a piece that's a failure. And in fact, when people criticize the narrator option in Oedipus, he then turned on Cocteau and said, oh, yes, those irritating interruptions. Stravinsky can never be there's no fault. You know, it's always his partner's fault, whoever the collaborator is. That's so what was interesting is. He saw a staging, Stravinsky went and he, and I think he either saw it or he heard about it and he, it was at the Met and it was the first one in America. And they created these very blocky kind of monolith, you know, type creations as costumes. He did indicate that the faces, the singers should be masked. So you weren't supposed to see their faces. So you didn't relate to them as the human being. And apparently he really liked this. So I think one of the things that we see it in the Julie Taymor film and everything is in some way, the, the body of the singer, which is so important to staged drama, to opera, which is even if they're just moving, we hear this voice come out of a body. We're aware of the human in front of us, the idealization of, or idolization of prima donnas and singers, he wants to erase that and create a sense where we're not even seeing that human being, which I thought was, was interesting um, because it fits with his objectivity. I don't want an interpreter, right? I don't want, I want it to just be this formal presence in a way, statues coming to life. And this made me think also of a ballet that came out, and he would have known about this, which was um, Création du Monde of Mio, who is one of Les Six, one of the six that Cocteau was very much involved with, one of the six composers there in Paris. And this creation of the world was an African creation story. The costumes created for this were similarly kind of, well, they said it was costumes with dancers inside, as opposed to dancers with costumes on. I wonder if he also took that. So this idea of, in a way, erasing the body to do, and in this case, it was an African creation story. So another kind of far away antiquity, stylized gods and goddesses and this formal thing, he could take that and bring it. So we treat it like an oratorio, not least because of the chorus being so important, which I think also fits, as you said, as you pointed out, with 
Greek drama, this idea of a chorus being the one kind of representation. But I also think he was trying to get at something that took away the body. And then finally, it was that he was saving money, which I thought was fascinating because we've seen that with other where stage performances uh, of operas are given, concert performances are given by orchestras because it's a lot cheaper, right? So you can occasionally present some things like this. So I, I just thought the, the mixture of factors that went into a work, it just reminds you of all the moving parts when you have these huge collaborations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as someone who, who works in theater, I'm very familiar with the sort of the pressures of disappearing funding and a, and a, a crushing deadline and just it, it has to get done somehow. We're just going to do it in whatever way we can. And, and then we'll try to make artistic sense out of it later, perhaps. And sometimes it, it produces something that's really, really fortuitous and really beautiful. And you're like, oh, yeah, I meant to do that completely. Um, I think it's interesting, too, though, this idea of the, the erasure of the body. It's kind of an erasure, erasure of the personhood of the performer and also of their point of view. So not just, not just kind of taking away the idea of interpretation um, in the performance, but also just sort of like erasing all of the other people who make it happen. So in the end, it's kind of all about Stravinsky <laughs> again. Uh, maybe there's something too in that, that sort of resistance to sharing, to sharing credit. Um, yeah, I was, I was read, I was probably reading some of the same sources you were, um, conversations and interviews that he gave years after the fact where when asked to, to talk about Oedipus, he would say things like, oh yeah, the music is great. The libretto was a problem. And the only critique, you know, he would, he would offer no critique of his own work. He was happy with it, but, uh, but would critique the work of, of other people involved in the production, particularly Cocteau. What's interesting too, there's another, another form of, of erasure, which is that Cocteau wrote the role of the narrator for himself originally. He had actually wanted to perform it. Um, and in the end, it was, it was not, he, it wasn't his decision and he wasn't able to do it. He finally read the narrator in a revival in the early 50s. So he did get to do it at some point, but you know, like 25 years after. Cocteau and Stravinsky were thinking to create, to offer this piece as a kind of uh, anniversary present to the impresario of the Ballet Russe, right. uh, the, the Serge Diaghilev. And Diaghilev had been the, the man to bring the, the Rite of Spring and Petrushka and Firebird and mm -hmm. uh, later Cocteau's work with Picasso Parade. So this was somebody they both knew, they were close to him, particularly Stravinsky. I think it's a really strange uh, anniversary present. I mean, of all the things they could present, it's a little bit strange, but um, Diaghilev and Cocteau would fight. So it was Diaghilev who got to do the hiring in the end, again, because of who's in charge of the production or providing the funding. So when Diaghilev did it, I guess he found the speaker and he came in and did it and uh, Cocteau was, I mean, you read about these little back and forth that are going on. I mean, we have to remember, and, and this, I see it a lot with Stravinsky because Stravinsky, arguably one of the most famous composers of the 20th century. Uh, I remember when Time Magazine did its millennial uh, edition, uh, Stravinsky was chosen as the most important composer of, in the Western tradition for the century. And Philip Glass wrote the essay. And I thought, yeah, I mean, he is kind of the superstar. And that's a very carefully 
managed brand. This was a man from it with an ego very early on and very sensitive to criticism. So one of the less attractive aspects of his personality is this tendency to collaborate because he worked on so many things that involved collaboration. And arguably his, his most famous work is the Rite of Spring. And I've had so many musicians say, oh, well, but his music was so you know, far flung and modernist and innovative and people had a riot. And what they don't understand is that the riot was also because of the dancing and Nijinsky's mm-hmm. incredible choreography that went against every classic rule of ballet. Right. And as soon as that happened, it wasn't that Stravinsky went out there and said, yeah, take that. I'm novel. He was hurt. He left. He, you know, stomped out of the theater. Uh, and then he blamed Nijinsky and said, Nijinsky wasn't musical. And I never intended this as a ballet. Again, not true. We know this. Um, this was all this. So he blamed the choreography. When L'Histoire du Soldat, when the soldier's tale, and there was mixed reviews, it was Ramu, it was the poet. And unfortunately, and I bring this up only because this tends to, Stravinsky dictates reception of his works. So people don't necessarily say, well, maybe he's wrong, right? And maybe we're able to look at this a little bit more evenly. And uh, that's when the Joffrey Ballet brought us what they did their best to recreate Nijinsky's Rite of Spring choreography, it was a revelation. And I remember seeing it in San Francisco when they brought it through and literally having my mind blown about how powerful that piece as a staged ballet, as opposed to just an orchestral work. So I I think that many times we have to say, okay, Stravinsky, but then reconsider something and the, the work of his collaborators. Uh, and, and I, so I'm excited because I hope that people will come to this work, maybe because it's not as well done without those prejudices. Right. I did make the deliberate choice to listen all, I mean, I watched the production, but to, to listen all the way through. And I was, I, you know, I had the libretto open at the same time, but I didn't read any of the criticism, the scholarship, any of that before I watched it because I wanted to come to it with fresh ears and eyes, which I, um, which I hope that, uh, that all of the LA Opera's audiences will do too, if they're able to, um, because it allowed me to just sort of go with it. Dramatically, it didn't feel that it had a lot of forward momentum, right? And one of the things that Aristotle loved about Oedipus and one of the things that we still love about it today is that it moves like clockwork. It's a really tightly constructed plot and it just goes from one thing to the next. And it didn't, it didn't feel that way dramatically. And what was interesting is that the, it, it was that musically, um, it did have more propulsion, um, I thought, more than textually. Uh, it always seemed that one, um, you know, one musical idea would lead into the next one, often something kind of unexpected, but the connection was always there. So the sort of the smoothness and the forward momentum that I, that I wanted from the text, I found in the music rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that, that certain themes would keep coming back, like the, the opening chorus, we hear that again at the end. Um, the way you said earlier that Oedipus is kind of the only character who gets to sing something different 
at different points. And it's, I think it's because, I mean, I think that is an interesting dramatic choice because he's the one who's learning something new along the way. Right. Right. Whereas, uh, whereas Tiresias knows what he knows from the beginning, the messenger knows, I mean, it's the first time he's telling it, but the messenger knows what he knows. Oedipus is the one whose point of view is shifting. And I think that's reflected in his music. That's a really good point about because there are all these linking motives, often little ideas that he'll carry between numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I know that Stravinsky was uh, one of the reasons he kept rejecting Cocteau's librettos was he did not want a through composed idea. He did want blocks. He did want what we think of as number aria, number opera, where kind of an aria, recitative feeling. So he wanted some of those, let's say slightly more artificial framing of pieces, but he does offer these connecting tissues. And that's a beautiful thing that you just brought up is this idea of a shifting perspective. You know, something as our, as the audiences are listening is maybe to keep that in mind is how Oedipus, the styles he chooses. He also, I would argue he and Jocasta definitely have the most, in some ways their style is the most operatic. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always liked about Jocasta is her particular number comes halfway through, right? She opens the second part mm-hmm. and it is definitely a Verdian. Uh, there's a little bit of Carmen thrown in there. There's this very chromatic idea. She and Oedipus overlap. They have, you have finally two voices touching at the critical moment. Right. When they both begin to realize something is wrong, which is the trivium, right? The crossroads. And they go back and forth. There's a moment, and I, I watched it again. Again, like you, I kind of said, okay, try not to pay attention to the production. Listen what's happening musically. And that really struck me is that central moment where you realize some light bulbs are going on and fear has suddenly entered the hearts of, of both Jocasta and Oedipus. That they're both saying, ah, oh, wait, what? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was great. One of the, the other strong things, and I don't know, getting back to that class kind of classicization is the use of chorus. And it's only male chorus here. And he does do a, almost a kind of Handelian thing where they, they speak a lot in homorhythms saying, you know, it's declared and, and then it will have like a fake fugato kind of moment. So he plays with this idea of the people. And it made me think of the Oedipus that you talked about, that it was the chorus that was being brought forward. And choruses are generally very important for oratorio. So that's another moment. And I think for anybody who's heard Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms, they're going to recognize certain sounds that remind, it's it's very choral in, in that way. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the chorus and the narrator um, sort of serve a, um, you would expect them to serve a similar function in that in Greek tragedy, we usually think of the chorus as the audience's guide. Um, and here we have the narrator in addition. So it's sort of, you know, two layers of, of guidance and outside perspective. Um, I love, uh, I just, 
I loved what you're saying about the crossroads. And I, I want to almost um, not retract, but maybe qualify what I said earlier about Stravinsky not being into word painting, because what he did do there is create a bit of a musical crossroads. And the, that word in Latin, triwium, means three ways, right? Three roads coming together. And so you actually have the three voices, right? You have Oedipus and Jocasta and the orchestra. So that's the, that's the three-way crossroad right. at the center of the story. So I think as audiences who hopefully will have some of these ideas in mind as they, they go in to listen to this performance is to think about the quality of each character's vocal presentation, right? There is a kind of sound that they come out with. This dramatic moment of the trivium and how compelling that is. Uh, how the chorus functions, because sometimes the chorus is, ha is, is speaking as a people that we're, in some ways we can have some sympathy for the chorus, right? Because they're usually just suffering. I mean, at some level they're, they're a cry for help. And uh, that idea, the fact that it's males only, I thought was very, an interesting choice. It's not what he does with the Symphony of Psalms. It creates a very particular sound, almost a weirdly martial sound, a church sound since women yes. were not allowed to sing in church. Yes, exactly. A church sound, but also a classical sound. Yes. Because, of course, in ancient Athens, the tragedies were performed exclusively by men. All of it coming together. So this masculine, and in fact, Jocasta is the only one, right? right? She's the only female voice to present herself. Opera has always been about production. Oratorio has not, but in that this is usually presented with some sense of visual content, let's say, usually, because even in the oratorio form, Stravinsky wanted visual content. And I love that opera continually has to reinvent itself, even when it's a work we know very well. The production decisions are always new. I mean, you can, yes, you can bring back an old production, but usually the excitement is not always for, okay, we're gonna see Carmen again, all right. But it's Carmen with this new visual invention, this new visual idea that comes out. And so I hope too, that in addition to the amazing musical content that will be presented uh, the, and, and engaging with this old tragedy, this old story, we're also getting something new and projections and the use of filmed art within opera has changed the game in a lot of ways. Uh, in some ways it can be even more cost-effective, right? Cause you don't have to build a bunch of sets. Right. <laughs> little, um, but just, we get to see things. We are a visually mediated culture. We are used to seeing film art all around us, whether on TV or music videos or the movies or whatever, or billboards, frankly, or the gas station now where they'll have something playing. We, we relate to that. So that is an updating, that's a 2021 uh, aspect of this production, of this piece, this presentation by LA Opera that's very exciting. I think it'll be wonderful um, because it is, an, it is a new production uh, and the visual component in this case will be provided um, by this fantastic um, multimedia performance art uh, company called Manual Cinema. And they, if I understand correctly, have created this, have created the visuals specifically for this production. 
So it will be the first time that that, um, that is available. And I've, uh, I've seen some of their work and it's really marvelous. And I think, um, it captures that kind of, um, uh, almost, you know, quasi mythical, magical, uh, supernatural element that's present in the Oedipus story. So I think that'll be, that'll come together really beautifully. And Stephen Fry is the narrator, which is incredible as well. You know, I hope that audiences as they go to watch and hear this will remember that that is essentially, that this is an essential um, division of your senses, right? But in service to a whole experience, which is there's something for your eyes, there's something for your ears, there's also something for your body, the very sound of orchestras in a room, the feeling of a person's voice, especially an opera singer's voice coming through your body. I hope that all of that will be possible for the audience of this great presentation. And they don't have to listen to Stravinsky. It's okay to be moved emotionally by the tragedy of Oedipus when I think a lot of us over the last year plus have felt very much uh, like we were dealing with fate. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.